1: Welcome to First Move This Hour, where it's all about the ECB wait and see. The European Central Bank in the unfortunate, let's call it that, position of being the first to make a rate decision since the collapse of U.S. bank Silicon Valley Bank. That announcement is expected in around 15 minutes time. Just remember a week ago, we expected them to hike half a percentage point today. Well, it's anyone's guess, though a Lagarde lull, a.k.a. not moving at all, also risks sending a message that policymakers perhaps fear worse is to come. So that's the balance. Christine Lagarde's choice of language would then become incredibly key and other measures too perhaps. Remember they have all sorts of tools that they can use to address financial instability so it's a high-stakes decision that could give at least a hint to how the US Federal Reserve will act next week too. I'm sure there's been plenty of transatlantic phone calls already. Now as we wait US futures uh, I'd call them choppy the Dow and the S&P losing a little bit of ground here. You can see the S&P futures right now down some four-tenths of one percent key regional banks in the united states once again under fresh pressure bucking that trend though europe solidly higher driven by improvements in some of the major banks following news that the swiss national bank is lending credit suisse some 54 billion dollars in emergency funds now shares of credit suisse are currently higher by more than 20%, that's a fresh look at that. Bouncing from Wednesday's all-time lows, the company's debt securities are also on the rise too. The cost of buying insurance Against a Credit Suisse default, hit record levels in the previous session, too. A sense of the alarm that was out there. Now, after a session of wild moves, too, across global government bonds yields on Wednesday, things are calmer, certainly in Europe. In the United States, 10 year yields still easing, too. You can see that level there 3.4% or 3.4 and a quarter. Now, we've seen a dramatic drop in bond yields this week that overshadowed actually the volatility that we've seen in stock markets too. Bond market investors are now predicting that the Federal Reserve cuts rates towards the end of this year, with the Fed forced to unwind some of its recent hikes to stabilise the banking sector. We're going to discuss whether or not they can do that in the face of inflation. Lots to get to this hour, but let's bring you up to speed with the latest on Credit Suisse. And Claire Sebastian joins us now. The silence from the Swiss National Bank yesterday was deafening and we saw the ripple effect across the European banking sector. The message saying, look, you can take a lot of money on loan from us seems to have stabilised things. And it also says that the Swiss National Bank believes that Credit Suisse is still solvent, it's still viable and it's an important Mm -hmm. message.
2: Yeah, I mean, similar to what we got in the States, they came out and said, look, uh, the system we think is stable. Credit Suisse has the right capital ratios, sorts of soothing words. But we're here if they need us. And of course, they did come in and take out uh, that almost 54 billion dollar credit line. They were quick to point out, A, that they were doing this, quote, preemptively, preemptively strengthening liquidity is the phrase they use, trying to make it clear that things are okay. They're just doing this just in case. They also took pains to distance themselves from what was happening in the United States with Silicon Valley Bank saying Credit Suisse is conservatively positioned against interest rate risk. But there are lingering fears both in the banking sector as a whole, Julia. I think we can show you those European bank stocks. The rally that we saw first thing this morning has cooled off uh, a little bit today, as you can see, some of them even uh, dropping a little bit lower. Perhaps also ahead of the ECB meeting, there are fears that after you know three banks uh, essentially going under in the United States, one big bank in Europe needing central bank uh, intervention, that there might be more to come, more vulnerabilities to emerge in the banking sector. So, so that's one thing as to the future of Credit Suisse. There are significant concerns there. This is a bank that, of course, had major problems. Even before the very unfortunate timing uh, of both its uh, comments on its comments on in its financial report on the material weaknesses in its reporting, followed up by the comments from its biggest shareholder that they 're not going to put any, any more money in, all of that coming off the back of what happened in the US but there were problems before, and there are people raising big concerns about this now. JP Morgan analysts think that now the most likely scenario for Credit Suisse is that they actually get taken over. Uh, most likely, they say by their bigger Swiss rival UBS. In their report, they say we see SNB liquidity support, uh, as indicated last night, as not enough, and believe CSG Credit Suisse Group situation is about ongoing market confidence issues with its IB investment banking strategy and ongoing franchise erosion. They continue, in our view, status quo is no longer. An option. So, the, given that drop in market confidence, they believe that there will essentially isn't much chance that Credit Suisse can complete its turnaround on its own. Julia.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, some kind of resolution to this business, and perhaps breaking it up into pieces and um, and see what happens there. Watch this space. Um, so it either ring fences or doesn't, and it obviously ties to the next part of this conversation with which is uh, in the face of higher inflation than the United States. So far, recession resistance in the Eurozone in particular, relative to the the United States, but also having done less work on raising rates. Mm. What does the ECB do
2: today? Well, the ECB finds itself in a very unfortunate position, Julia, as having to trailblaze off the back of this, uh, you know, essentially a perceived banking crisis on both sides of the Atlantic. One analyst I spoke to this morning said it would have be been much better uh, if the first out of the gate was either the Bank of England or the Fed, because they're much further along in their tightening cycles. So it would have been less uh, sort of jarring if they were to suddenly pause. The ECB still playing catch up and, of course, facing eight and a half percent inflation uh, in the euro area. I think, you know, there were was a well-telegraphed half-point rate rise for this meeting. I think many believe that that will now be moderated uh, to a quarter point. Of course, doing nothing might also raise concerns about what does the ECB know about the financial system that we perhaps don't. So a quarter point would be seen to be acknowledging uh, the situation in the banking sector while also you know, tackling continuing to tackle inflation. And of course, we will also hear from Christine Lagarde, who will be needed to, to put across some soothing words about how the ECB uh, will provide a backstop to the banking system if things go wrong. The chief economist of Capital Economics this morning uh, saying that it would be best if there was no mention, he said, of conditionality or moral hazard, please. So definitely looking out for, for her language and the way she presents this in that press conference. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It would be a, um, wow, if they went
1: half a percentage point, what are they doing? And mm-hmm. if they went, no, it's wow, what do they know that we don't? So perhaps the middle ground here is the safest option. Let's hope for mm-hmm. a trailblazing, to use your word, rather than going down in flames. Claire Sebastian, we shall wait and see that decision momentarily. Thank you very much for that. In the meantime, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reassuring Americans that their bank deposits are safe. She's set to tell the Senate Finance Committee the U.S. banking system remains sound after decisive action by officials. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, tell that to some of the regional banks that are seeing market pressure, certainly pre-market today. Do we believe her? Do individuals believe her? And is that conditional, at least at this stage, on the size of deposit? That you have in u.s banks because that matters
0: yeah you know uh, julia all good questions and the fact that we're seeing regional banks in the united states come under renewed pressure this morning does signal that this anxiety continues i mean first republic bank that's a a large regional bank based in san francisco down double-digit percentages, Western Alliance, also down Pac West. Um, all of these stocks coming under a lot of pressure. And that's despite the fact that the Treasury Secretary is out there this morning, um, again, trying to reassure people that the American banking system is sound. Um, the key line from uh, Janet Yellen's prepared remarks, she says, quote, Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there When they need them. And she pointed out that uh, the deposits, even at Silicon Valley Bank, the California lender that collapsed on Friday, even those deposits were available uh, on Monday morning when business opened. Uh, But we know that the FDIC um, only insures up to $250,000 per borrower per bank. But the fact that the federal government came in and rescued above that limit, right, they rescued the uninsured depositors, not just at Silicon Valley Bank, but also at Signature Bank, the New York company that uh, went under this weekend. You know, it does imply, Julia, that they're willing to help depositors above the uninsurance limit if that's what it takes to restore confidence in this banking system.
1: Yes. Not explicit but implicit as a result. And what you're effectively saying is every single bank, therefore, in the United States is now considered systemic and able to shake the system. Um, well, good luck doing stress tests on every single bank in the United States, Matt. It's, uh, it's very complicated, but confidence is the most important thing at this point and um, certainly the point you're making too. Great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, echoes of Top Gun next. Watch this. Newly released video shows part of what happened at least between a US drone and a Russian fighter jets over the back sea on Tuesday. It shows a Russian fighter dumping fuel as it approaches the drone, which later crashed into the sea. Just keep watching this. Now Russia denies its pilots acted recklessly. The Pentagon says the whole incident lasted 30 to 40 minutes. Natasha Bertrand is at the Pentagon for us. Watching that whole thing, you you sort of see the screen pixelate and disappear. So I think despite the differences of opinion, let's call it that, on what happened earlier this week, we know some kind of collision took place. I guess what we don't know at this stage, Natasha, is whether it was deliberate or not.
3: Exactly right, Julia. So what we are hearing from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, is that it is still unclear to the United States whether that direct impact on the jet was actually on the drone, I should say, was deliberate. They do know, however, that the reckless behavior that they saw the pilot take in that instance, getting really close to the drone, dumping fuel on it, that was deliberate. And that was extremely dangerous, the U.S. has said. And it could have caused injury or damage to the Russians and the the pilots of the Russian jet as well. And so the U.S. now releasing this new video to kind of directly contradict what the Russians have been saying, because the Russians have been saying in recent days that their jet did not act recklessly, that it did not make direct contact with the drone. Well, now we are seeing in this video that in fact it did. And of course, when we look at the video, we can see that moment of impact, kind of where the video cuts out and you see it all pixelated, that is the moment of collision. When the video re-emerges, you can see that the propeller on the back of the drone has actually been damaged. And that is the key proof that US officials are pointing to, uh, noting that the fighter jet made direct contact with that drone. Now, this is all very significant because it is the first time that a Russian jet and a, an American drone have made direct physical contact with each other over the course of the russian invasion of ukraine and it is important because the russians and the americans are operating in this space very closely in this region Uh, on a regular basis. And so while the Russian jets have tried to intercept American systems like these drones in the past, kind of flying alongside them, never before have we actually seen this level of aggression by a Russian pilot. And I should note that we are told that the Russian Defense Ministry, officials in the Russian Defense Ministry, actually did explicitly task these pilots with harassing this drone, making it clear that this was not the behavior of a rogue pilot here this was a deliberate tasking by the russian ministry of defense julia
1: Mm. natasha bertrand there thank you for that report now on to an important milestone that's how the south korean president's office described a meeting with his japanese counterpart in tokyo it was the first such visit in 12 years and comes as the two countries face mutual growing security threats from nations like china and north korea the latter on stark display just hours before the trip when North Korea fired a long-range ballistic missile into the sea to the east of the Korean Peninsula. and The Chinese billionaire has been arrested in New York and charged with swindling more than a billion dollars from his followers. Wu Wei is a critic of the Chinese government who is exiled in Manhattan. He's an associate of former Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump's advisor Steve Bannon. Selena Wang reports. Exiled Chinese billionaire and proclaimed dissident Guo
4: Wengui was arrested on Wednesday. U.S. federal prosecutors allege he defrauded thousands of online followers out of more than a billion dollars through complex investment schemes. He's charged with taking advantage of them by promising them outsized returns if they invested in in his cryptocurrency, media, and other companies. He's also known as Ho Wen Kwok and Miles Guo. The U.S. attorney Damian Williams said, quote, Kwok is charged with lining his pockets with the money he stole, including buying himself and his close relatives a 50,000 square foot mansion, a three and a half million dollar Ferrari and even two $36,000 mattresses and financing a $37 million luxury yacht. Now, he's also known for being close to former Donald Trump advisor Steve Bannon. In fact, Bannon was arrested in 2020 on Gua's yacht on unrelated fraud charges. In China, Guo reportedly oversaw a property empire and, while facing charges from the Chinese government, fled the country and has been living in the U.S. since around 2015. He's been a staunch critic of the Chinese government for years. Guo founded 2 nonprofit organizations called the Rule of Law Foundation and Rule of Law Society, which prosecutors allege he used to amass followers who aligned with his self-proclaimed policy goals when it comes to China. In a bizarre twist, a person familiar with the matter told CNN that a fire broke out in his apartment when the FBI was on site executing a search warrant earlier Wednesday. A spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office said the cause of the fire is under investigation. CNN has also
1: reached out to Guo's lawyer for comment. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And breaking news, the European Central Bank deciding to raise interest rates by half a percentage point. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna. Wow, is all I can say. The European Central Bank deciding to send the boldest message that they can and perhaps also that, hey, we've got other tools. If there's challenges in the banking sector, inflation matters more right now.
5: Which is really interesting, because I have to say the bets this morning were that this 50 basis point uh, increase was probably off the cards. And let's be fair, this was actually very much signposted in February at the last meeting. It's possibly the most baked in forward guidance we've ever got. It said that the governing council was planning to raise rates by half a percentage point. But given the turmoil turmoil we saw in the markets over the last couple of days, particularly with Credit Suisse, there was a feeling that they wouldn't go whole hog and perhaps they would Consider the mood music and consider the pressure and the vulnerabilities that higher interest rates are having on bank balance sheets and at least the concern of investors. Maybe pull that back. I was reading bets for 40 basis points or even halving it to just 25. So I'm quite surprised that they've continued with half a percentage point. But it does go to show inflation is what they care about right now and why it's fallen since it's October high. But it's still pretty sticky,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I'm just going to have a quite quick look when we can pull them up at um, how markets are reacting, how um, the euro is reacting, even how the banks are reacting. Because as we were saying, and I mentioned earlier, it's sort of, wow, we're on that wow on the top side. What are they doing here? Um, It does send a start message. But I also do think we have to sort of pause here as well and reiterate the fact that look at what we've seen in the United States where they provided that facility for banks that are holding government bonds that have lost value Mm -hmm. as a result of the rate decisions to get access to liquidity from the Federal Reserve. The ECB has all sorts of policy tools like this. and It's going to be fascinating to hear what Christine Lagarde says in what around 30 minutes time because the choice that she was going to have to make if she decided to go or the, the european central bank uh, members decided to do less here was that they were going to have to be verbally incredibly stringent about their uh, plans to tackle inflation going forward because it remains such a huge challenge yeah there you go you see so we've lost some ground across Ooh. these european markets but still managing to hold into positive territory um bold is what I'll call that, Anna. I
5: have to say, I think going ahead with this rate hike as planned has just raised the stakes as to what Christine Lagarde is going to say in half an hour. What is she going to say to reassure investors, reassure the sector? I think we're going to have to have a almost, you know, we'll do whatever it takes moment for the ECB just to draw a line under all of this.
1: Yeah, I think she's going to say that we're well capitalized. Um, This is not 2008. Uh, We're Mm. in a very different situation. We're prepared for trouble. We will provide support that we need to. But right now, eye on the ball here. And that is um, we have an inflation problem. Our interest rates are lower than what we see in the United States. And um, we will proceed. Fascinating. Um, Anna, thank you for that. We'll have more on the European Central Bank's decision after the break with Christina Hooper, the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Just to reiterate, the European Central Bank deciding to promise, fulfill what they promised, which was a half a percentage point high. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As we've been reporting, the European Central Bank has spoken loudly. The European Central Bank announcing what it signalled. Let's be clear, an interest rate hike of half a percentage point. However, investors and many analysts expected them just to raise rates by around a quarter of a percent. Given the backdrop, the ongoing bank uncertainties, some even suggesting that the ECB might pause this month and let some of the dust settle, perhaps. Here's the market reaction. U.S. stocks still on track for a lower open. European stocks now tilted to the downside. Yes, a wow moment perhaps expected here, too. Once again, we're closely watching the action in U.S. regional banks whose shares have suffered extreme volatility after the Silicon Valley bank collapse last week. As you can see, they are losing ground once again today. Christina Hooper joins us now. She's the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Um, Christina, what do you make of that? Because uh, you were one of those that was expecting them to ease back a bit here and just hike by a quarter.
6: Well, I I think it is certainly a bold statement. And Mm. it really underscores that the ECB's focus remains inflation that that's a bigger concern for them than financial stability and I think the argument is that there are other tools to manage financial stability and I, I think the, the ECB was likely emboldened by the securing of, of the loan um, from Swiss National Bank for Credit Suisse. Having said all that, I think it would have been better if the ECB had taken a a softer touch, a softer approach today and hiked rates 25 basis points. I think it probably would have been more dangerous, though, to not hike rates at all because that would have suggested that the ECB thinks this is a real crisis and that could have caused a lot of of nervousness and, and fear in markets.
1: I've sort of got a long memory for these things. Um, Perhaps what's the danger that we look back on uh, this rate hike at at this moment in time? And think it's got odes of uh, 2007 where um, rate hikes were taking place at at the wrong time. Well, I think that central banks uh, in general have a history
6: of of making policy errors, right, and and not cutting at the right times. Although I wouldn't draw a lot of parallels between now and 2007. I I think what we're seeing is still fairly um, individual, idiosyncratic situations, um, uh, some some, uh, difficult business models for this environment. However, uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't stress on the system created by a massive amount of rate hikes in a short period of time so i think we're getting to the point where central banks need to tread carefully and i certainly hope that the fed is not going to follow suit and hike rates 50 basis points next week
1: that was going to be my next question i was just reading from some of the statement Um, and to your point about the differences between now and and what we've seen in the past the euro era banking sector is resilient with strong capital and liquidity positions and they have a policy toolkit to help which goes exactly to your point Um, but does it argue when we jump to the United States that perhaps the Federal Reserve looks at the situation and says we can do quarter of a percentage point too?
6: Well, I'm I would be comfortable with the Fed hiking rates 25 basis points. Mm. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I, I would prefer a pause, uh, but I think it's when we get in into these jumbo rate hikes where we press our luck, where we increase the chances of a financial accident, because it's happening so hard and so fast. I mean, if you think about it, um, the Fed hiked rates uh, back before the global financial crisis between 2004 and 2006, about 400 basis points over the course of 24 months. Um, What we've seen uh, in the most recent year is the Fed hiking rates about 475 basis points over the course of 10 or so months. That's a lot for uh, an economy to take. Thus far it's been quite resilient, but I, I think as we move forward, the Fed is pressing its luck, and uh, and I would err on the side of caution. Uh, I'm hoping we're close to a pause. It can be a conditional pause, um, the Fed certainly wants to be data dependent. Um, but I do think that that there is um, uh, it's appropriate to um, to to come to the end of this rate hike cycle and see how much, how well the economy digests what has been just a rapid increase in rates over a very short period of time.
1: Yes, and the economy has been resilient. But what we're clearly seeing is uh, indigestion issues in, in the financial plumbing and that's the situation and, and part of what they have to weigh up at this moment. Um, Christina, on that point, do you think they've done enough? Because we are still seeing pressure on some of these, these regional banks. Has enough been done to, to underpin the system in your mind? Because that's also what the Federal Reserve has to, has to be asking itself at this moment. Well, I think
6: enough has been done thus far. What I'm really encouraged by is that we are three for three when it comes to uh, policy responses to mini crises, right? We had the Bank of England step in very quickly after the the UK guilt yield crisis in September and October of last year. Um, We had the US government step in quickly over the weekend to address the issues in, in that mini crisis. And now we've had the Swiss national banks step in. Uh, So I think that the environment uh, is one in which uh, there's a level of confidence that has been created that policymakers are far more proactive, they're much more sensitive to the likelihood of a financial accident, and are going to step in quickly. And I think that's all we need is is to to have that assumption um, that, that we'll continue to see that as problems arise. Because this is unlikely to be the last problem created. We're, we're probably going to see other shoes drop, other financial accidents, but I think there will be a comfort that markets and uh, investors find uh, in knowing that policymakers are very sensitive to this and are willing to be proactive.
1: Yeah makes perfect sense to me. Christina, great to have you on. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Just a reminder to our viewers, the European Central Bank throwing caution to the wind at this moment and hiking by half a percentage point. Plenty more analysis to come. Stay with me. Welcome back to First Move. Now, our next guest argues that Silicon Valley Bank's sudden collapse shows that financial regulators are unprepared for bank runs in the age of social media. And he suggests platforms like Twitter and Instagram should be required to flag major spikes in activity concerning banks and financial institutions, allowing regulators to get ahead of possible problems faster. It's an interesting concept. Joining us now is Bradley Tusk. He's the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures. Bradley, always fantastic to have you on the show. You actually wrote an op-ed in Fortune magazine, which I read and loved. And you just pointed out the sheer volume from different sources of social media mentions of Silicon Valley Bank. Let's just start there because some of these numbers are astonishing.
7: Yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank, my guess is most people watching this right now had never heard of Silicon Valley Bank, and that's with good reason. It was a very specific bank aimed at one very specific industry. And then all of a sudden, everyone heard about Silicon Valley Bank. One measure showed that mentions on social Silicon Valley Bank went up by over 86,000 percent. Or if you use the Google Analytics scale, Silicon Valley Bank it normally averages about zero. Uh, at the peak, they were at 100. So they were the most talked about issue on social media. So clearly, uh, what we've seen is in the age of social media, a bank panic takes on a different pace and a different uh, approach than it did in the past. And we've got to be ready for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's two things here. It is the, the use of social media, clearly prolific in the sector that we're talking about, too, with the tech sector, which is where high exposure was. But also, I think over the past 10 years, the change in digitization, the fact that we can pull deposits or send wires or do what we want at the touch of a button, the combination of those two things, crazy. What you're saying is you want social media to alert the authorities if they see a spike. And I'm Talking a far smaller spike in activity than what was it, eighty-six thousand percent. Even just a fifteen percent spike, Bradley, it could make all the difference. Right,
7: totally. I mean, look, this is a proposal to me is a no-brainer, right? All I'm asking is that when you know, let's make a list of a couple of hundred financial institutions that we think you know, if they were to fail, would be a huge problem for the economy. And say, if social media activity about these platforms spikes by, like you said, fifteen percent. All that has to happen is Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, call this person at the FDIC and let them know. From from there on, it's on the FDIC, but perhaps by finding out a little sooner, they can act faster, and that may help stave uh, a bank run, it may help save layoffs, it may help stave all kinds of problems, so why not do this?
1: Yeah, and hours... Never mind one day could make a huge difference in in this kind of situation. Um, And on a practical basis as well, it would surely be very easy to separate positive mentions on something from negative mentions on something to isolate that too. Um, How open do you think the social media companies would be to this?
7: Um, Look, they seem to resist any attempts of (laughs) any kind of regulation at all. Uh, But I think given that they are so widely hated, in Washington and in state capitals, and quite frankly, by parents, uh, including me, and I have two teenage kids, this would be an easy gift to say, you're absolutely right. Um, We could help a bunch of people here, maybe stop some problems, doesn't cost us anything. And so they should embrace it. But embracing it would imply that Google or Meta or TikTok are actually good at politics, and we get to see any evidence of that so far.
1: You're super well connected. Have you spoken to anybody about this and, and had positive feedback?
7: Yeah, I, I've, I've been talking to legislators uh, and some regulators, both at the state and federal level, about this idea. And I think, you know, no one thinks that it's sort of the most important thing to do in the immediate aftermath of SVB. And I get that. But when the smoke clears in a couple of weeks, this is an easy thing to move forward. So I, I think we'll see support from it on the government side. And my hope is that. The platforms are smart enough to recognise that this is a no-brainer and they should be in support too.
1: Yeah, and in the cold light of day, perhaps far easier than broadening out stress tests and legislating for that and which banks where and how. So um, uh, I have to say I'm with you on this. Um, I want to talk to Bradley Tusk, the venture capitalist and someone who intrinsically understands um, the sector that we're talking about and the implications of what's just happened. We had one startup CEO talking to us earlier this week and he said, look, a week ago, um, Silicon Valley Bank was the gold standard. And actually, if you didn't bank with them, investors would sort of look at you and say why aren't you in investing with them so sort of what did they know and why did they turn you down um what are the implications and and sort of how did you behave as an individual as well when when you saw what was happening yeah
7: so look to be clear we had our money in silicon valley bank as a right. venture capital fund but most portfolio companies did as well um, and it look it did make sense because Silicon Valley Bank was very good at providing specific services needed by venture capital funds and by tech startups. And so it really all made perfect sense until all of a sudden it didn't. Um, And so there's a few questions here. One is, you know, should our industry have been more aware of the overall financial conditions of the bank that we all use? So we could have seen this coming sooner, perhaps by the time that people in VC started talking about it, the panic had already begun. And two, The banks that are now picking up all these accounts, and by the way, this is a great opportunity for Chase, for Citibank, for Bank of America, Wells Fargo. um, Will they step up and provide the kinds of services that VCs need, the tech startups need, that they hadn't done before, but now there's a whole ecosystem that they will hopefully fill?
1: Yeah, I mean, the danger is it's a hollowing out of the mid-sized banks that people who've got deposits less than $250,000 stick with the smaller banks. Everybody else, to your point, goes to some of the bigger ones. And and that means less competition. And that means perhaps tighter financial conditions. Are there going to be innovation consequences, do you think, for this, Bradley? If this is what we see, growth consequences for these businesses?
7: Absolutely. A couple of things. So first is I think we ought to consider raising the limit from $250,000. For an individual, of course, that makes total sense. But most businesses can't run their business with less than $250,000 in their checking account. Every time I have to make payroll, I need more money, right? So by definition, the rule we have is in no way, you know, correlated with what businesses actually need right now. Um, Second, you know, had the Fed let Silicon Valley Bank go down, half the startups in this country might have gone out of business. You talk about a hit to the innovation economy, this is where all of the new ideas come from. This is where all of the new technologies come from. And while most of those companies won't succeed, a few of them will be the next Amazon, the next Apple, and employ hundreds and thousands of people. And thank God we didn't lose all of them. But even now, uh, look, we have not written a check to a startup since all of this happened. Quite frankly, we've barely even thought about it because we've just been dealing with this. So even the pace of funding new startups in the last week or so has plummeted simply because everyone's been dealing with a crisis. And so uh, if we want to keep the innovation economy going, we need to have stability in the venture capital sector.
1: You know, critics very quickly of the sector would say that perhaps this knocks out some of the uh, irrational exuberance in the sector. Bradley, what would be your response to that? Well,
6: look, for,
7: first of all, it already, it's already been knocked down, right? Uh, you know, venture funding has been plummeting over the last year and a half. Valuations have fallen, um, venture-backed investments like crypto have absolutely plummeted. So that, that's already happened. They're just not paying attention. The second is there seems to be a real lack of understanding among the critics of this decision between depositors and investors. If you're an investor, when I invest in something, which I do for a living, and if it goes bad, I took the risk and I live with the consequences of it. And that's my job. You're supposed to deposit your money in a bank. That's all the money that circulates that powers the entire economy. You know, I can't keep it under my mattress. And if I did and everyone else did, the entire economy would collapse. So calling it a moral hazard to not make depositors whole just shows a fundamental lack of understanding of how economics work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> putting your bank, putting your cash in a bank should not be considered an investment decision. Yeah, very, exactly. very valid point. Yeah.
6: Right.
7: That's the <laughs> wanna do
1: I'm going to get yelled up for keeping talking to you. Bradley Task. great to <laughs> chat to you as always. All right. The founder and CEO of so We'll speak soon. Thank you. All yeah. right, coming up after the break, spelling out what freedom means to them. Children in Lagos, Nigeria, getting into the spirit of My Freedom Day. We'll hear one charity's fight against human trafficking. That's next. Today is My Freedom Day. CNN is uniting young people all around the world in a day of action against human trafficking and modern-day slavery. Just take a listen to the views of these students in West Africa.
4: I think it's important to raise awareness about human trafficking because by raising awareness, people will be able to understand what exactly it is and how to recognize it. And this can stop human trafficking in general. My Freedom Day is important because it raises awareness about modern-day slavery, resulting in governments being persuaded to pass meaningful legislation.
7: People should protest for the people who work without pay.
0: I think child labor should be eradicated in all countries.
1: Now, while human trafficking is illegal, In every country, it still happens all around the world. According to estimates from the charity United Way, around 50 million people are locked into forced labor, commercial sexual exploitation and forced marriages. And one in four of those victims are under the age of 18. But why is this so difficult to break? Well, because the sad fact is human trafficking generates an estimated $150 billion of profit per year for criminal gangs. Mara van der is the Executive Director of United Ways Worldwide Centre to Combat Human Trafficking. Mara, thank you so much for joining us. Um, they're extraordinary numbers. I think one of the things that leapt out at me from just looking at your website and the work that you do is something that you said, it's a crisis around the world, but it's also around the corner. It's close to all of us and it begins in vulnerable communities. Just talk us through that.
8: Thank you so much, good morning, and thanks for having us. Yes, exactly as you've said, human trafficking is a human rights crisis that happens all around the world, in every country in the world, but it's also in every uh, state and city in the United States, across Europe, across every country. And it can look like many different things. You can have women and girls who are trafficked for commercial sex, you have men and boys trafficked for labor, Uh, and this happens all uh, in many places. It can look like a man uh, trapped on a fishing boat in Thailand, not allowed to leave for two years, uh, not paid for that time. It can look like children in cobalt mines uh, working endlessly with no pay. It can look like entire families trapped into generational debt bondage in brick kilns in India and Nepal. And even right here, just down the street from our offices in Washington, D.C., it can look like a homeless youth who may be approached looking for a warm place to stay and someone raiding there to manipulate them uh, into commercial sex or acts that they're not willing to do for the benefit of those traffickers.
1: Yeah, as you say, it comes in in all forms that we have to be aware of. I think one of the other crucial things you say is um, the, one of the best ways of tackling this is to empower survivors of human trafficking and, and help them to help others because they've got experiences, understanding knowledge that that many of us simply don't. And you're launching a a scholarship or fellowship for um, a survivor to to, to help bring them into the system and and help them to help others. Just talk us through what that involves, the kind of people that you're looking for um, and what it will help achieve.
8: Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, We have learned so much about how to combat this problem around the world. And even though trafficking is growing, we've learned more than ever about what is needed to stop this horrific crime. And the most important thing is to follow the leadership and the expertise of those with lived experience of human trafficking. Uh, Traditionally, in this field, survivors of trafficking have not always been Uh, the leaders of the movement. And we're really seeking to change that because we cannot halt this crime if we don't understand what's happening. And people with lived experience of trafficking bring us that expertise uh, to help us win this fight. So we know that survivors are looking for ways uh, to become leaders in this movement. And the Book Fellowship, uh, where applications are opening today, is an opportunity that we developed with our colleagues at Survivor Alliance and here at United Way Worldwide. It will offer an opportunity to survivors of trafficking in the United States to be placed in anti-trafficking organizations and to become the leaders of the next generation of this work. So we're opening uh, the applications today. We're looking for survivors uh, to join us in this fight. And that's been core to our work here at United Way as we work with impacted communities all around the world. One of the key tenants of our work has been to elevate uh, and center knowledge and expertise of survivors that's how we're going to win this fight is when we bring everyone together but particularly to empower and lift up survivors of trafficking that's exactly what we need in order to see this uh horrific human rights abuse ended so people can learn more if they visit our website at unitedway.org i just want to mention the pembroke fellowship is named after a dear colleague a righteous uh fighter in the, in the fight against human trafficking. Her name is Deborah Pembroke, is a dear colleague and friend of ours who passed away last year. So the fellowship is named in her honor and we've had an amazing time working with our colleagues at Survivor Alliance um, who have been leading the fight, really pioneering this around the world to help make sure that survivors of trafficking are the leaders and the voices we need for this field.
1: And I'm sorry for your loss. Um, Mara, very quickly, Um, there may be survivors watching this and they're thinking, I'd love to do more, I'd love to help, but uh, I'm not sure I'm the right person. Tell us what you need and why they are.
8: We need everyone involved in this fight, and I think that's exactly what United Way does. We bring together diverse stakeholders in communities around the world, but we need everyone at the table. Uh, This problem is just getting bigger. In fact, trafficking, numbers of trafficking victims have grown by more than 20% just in the last five years. So we need everyone to step up to the table. We need government leaders, global leaders to make um transformational commitments to fund the work that's happening to bring it to scale we need businesses to get engaged like our incredible partner ups who's been funding and supporting this work but also training their drivers to spot the signs of trafficking on the ground businesses have an important role to play in this and so do individuals and young people especially i would encourage people to learn more about the issue and to find survivor-led organizations in your community. You can get in touch with them to support their work and learn more how to be involved. Raise your voice. And this I believe in my heart is an issue that we can end in our generation if we all come together to be united against human trafficking.
1: Yeah. Raise your voice. Mara, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Mara Vanderslice Kelly. Thank you so United good. Way. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. You're looking at live pictures of the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde's press conference after the bank's latest interest rate decision. The bank decided to raise interest rates amid concerns about the strength of the banking sector, saying, quote, its policy toolkit is fully equipped to provide liquidity support to the euro area financial system if needed. Let me just give you a quick look at the market reaction. US stocks opening lower as anticipated, though Europe, look at that, back up there and managing to hold on to gains. Anna Stewart is back with more on this decision. We're yet to get to the Q&A and, oh, that's going to be lively. Something tells me. What more did the statement say? Because it goes back to what you and I were saying earlier. There are other options here than using interest rates to handle financial stability. And inflation remains the key, it seems.
5: Yeah, inflation is too high and it's going to be too high for too long. That's the key element of what Christine Lagarde is saying right now. Um, I think what's also interesting, Julia, and I actually forgot about this, is what's not In the statement. That's always an interesting little nugget. And I can tell you that for the last four meetings, the ECB has said it expects to raise rates further once they announce what decision they've made. That is not in this report. So that makes you question whether or not Despite the slightly sort of bullish, confident we're going to carry on with a half a percent interest rate rise, whether or not they continue any further is now very much up for debate, I think. Um, Inflation was at 8.5 percent in February, um, obviously really overshooting the 2 percent target. It has come down from its high in October, but it remains sticky. And ECB staff say they're now seeing inflation averaging 5.3 percent this year, 2.9 percent next and finally hitting 2.1% in 2025. This is the issue that they want to tackle first, inflation. And I think you're right with what you said earlier. This is the tool they're using for inflation. There are other tools I am sure that we'll get onto when we get to the Q&A with Christine Lagarde that could be used if the banking sector needs it, if those balance sheets are too loaded with long-dated government bonds. I'm sure the ECB will say that they're ready to step in and help, but we do await that lively Q&A. Interestingly, Julia, I mean, do you remember Mario Draghi as ECB president? A lot of interest in what colour tie he wore over the years. Um, Christine Lagarde wearing red. Uh, maybe that says something.
1: How, I think. Um, but yes, it was. <laughs> I remember. But then he was there a while, wasn't he? She's got time to build up a, a collection of ties and... Um, <laughs> Facial expressions and things. We shall watch for the Q&A and uh, see what she says. And I think to your point, underscoring the system has the tools required. um, But sending a very strong message too. I think, about their confidence in, one, the ability to handle any problems. But also, as banks stand today, that they're in a far better position than we've seen in the past. It's going to be lively. Anna, thank you very much for that. Anna Stewart there. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter And Instagram pages, you can search for at J. CNN. Connect the world with Becky Anderson, up next.
7: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry.